Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here with us this morning. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, Roddy wanted to be Thor, but the hair didn't work for him. So um, we decided on the big green guy, you know, the Hulk. So he's a little nicer version of that. So we'll see who shows up in costume at our movie night. But it's great to have you here with us as we continue our series uh, this summer entitled This I Believe. When my daughter was uh, finishing up middle school, entering high school, she was starting to discover she had a real interest in history. And uh, along with one of the things of history, being a part of a history major, is you know lots of important facts that nobody else knows, and you're not sure the significance of those facts. And so she continued to collect uh, facts that we weren't really sure the significance of those. And in that day, one of the ways that those facts were brought to our home was the caps of Snapple bottles. There was always a fact underneath of the cap of the Snapple bottle. And so she brought some of those facts. So I got a few facts for you this morning. Anybody know what tire company makes the most tires in America? Anybody know? want to take a guess? What do you think? Michelin? Anybody? What's that? Goodyear, okay. So actually, the, one, the company that makes the most tires is Legos. 300 million of those little guys, you know. That's who makes the most tires in America. Um, did you know, there's another fun fact. Did you know that movie trailers, when they first came out, were not at the beginning of the movies? They did what? They trailed the movie. They were the trailers at the end. And guess what? Nobody stayed and watched them, so what did they do? They moved them to the beginning. That's how we got movie trailers. For all of you campers, those of you that love to be outside, did you know that there are one million ants for every person in the United States? So think about that next time you go outside for a picnic. There's one million ants for every person in the United States. Uh, for all the cookie fanatics, the average American will eat 19,000 cookies in their lifetime. Some of you already had that many and your lifetime is not over. Some of you are sharing those because you can't eat gluten. Um, how about this one? There are more plastic flamingos in the U.S. than real flamingos. There are more plastic flamingos in the U.S. than real flamingos. And there's a few words in the English language that have no words that rhyme with them. Anybody know those words? Let's see how you can do. Anybody know those words? Orange. Everybody knows that one. What? There's three more. What's that? Purple. Somebody, I heard somebody say purple. That's another one. There's two more words. Anybody have a guess? Nope. Silver and month. Those are the four words that do not rhyme with anything, any other words in the English language. The truth is you could live long, have a great life, um, live well and prosper, and not know any of those facts. They wouldn't matter to you. And there's lots of things in life that you may know information facts that really don't matter. But today we're going to talk about a fact that does matter. We're going to talk about a fact that matters because it's the one fact that could alter your entire life, that could change the rest of your life. And it's not a myth, it's not a legend, but it's a fact that makes a difference. And today we're going to explore the fact of the resurrection and of Jesus Christ and that it's rooted in history, not mythology. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 14. He said, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And I would suggest to you that if a man could predict his own death and resurrection, then actually pull it off, that we should probably listen to what he has to say. If you haven't been with us this summer, we've been in a series entitled The Apostles' Creed. And you can go online and listen to the messages that we've had up to this point in time. But the Apostles' Creed was a creed that was written over 1,600 years ago by a group of religious scholars. And they wanted to try to encapsulate the key points of the scriptures, of the Bible, and have those to be able to be shared in churches and religious communities around the world. And so they set out what they believe to be seven of the foundational 
beliefs. There's many other things that we believe, um, and those are found in our, ch- in our core beliefs of our church. But what this does is it gives us a snapshot of the important ones to sink our feet into in our faith. And if you're a student here this morning, you're a young adult here this morning, our hope for you is that you are in this journey of your faith becoming your own. You can't ride mom and dad's faith. At some point, you've got to decide, what do I believe? You've got to decide, what am I going to live based upon? And so we hope that if that's part of your journey, that this will help you to make your faith your own. If you're exploring faith, if you're trying to make sense of faith, maybe you've come back to God and you're like, I don't really know what I believe. I went to church when I was little, and I'm not sure where I'm at right now. I hope that this gives you clarity on that as well. If you've been a follower of Jesus and you're pretty convinced of what you believe, my hope for you this morning is that this would reinforce and reestablish the faith that you commit your life to. Would you join me in reading these first couple phrases that we've gone through um, already? So would you read this with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the death. And just a quick review of where we began. We first started focusing on God, and we talked about God being incredibly powerful and intimately personal. He's created this whole world, but He knows us and says, you can call me Father. And then we took a look at Jesus, his son, who took this journey from heaven to earth, from riches to rags, a journey downward to become the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. And many people believe in Jesus as a good teacher, as a role model, as someone who taught us how to love, who said some significant things like, turn the other cheek and judge not, lest you be judged. But for many people, the wrestling is the issue of the resurrection. The wrestling is the issue of the resurrection and this whole idea of Jesus rising from the dead. This is not a new problem, but it's a problem that's existed for a long period of time. It goes all the way back to our founding fathers. Um, Thomas Jefferson, um, he actually created his own Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a man who believed in God, but he struggled with other parts of what the Bible would say. And so what Thomas Jefferson did is he actually took a Bible and he cut out the sections that he wanted to believe in. And he then took an empty book with pages, took the sections he believed in, put them into this book and called it the Jefferson Bible. And so he included the stories about Jesus. He included the the words that Jesus said, the the wisdom that Jesus offered. He also wrote about Jesus' trials, his beatings, and his crucifixion. But then the story just ends. The last page in the book says this, There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Story over, book ends. Pretty sad way for the story to end. And I'm glad it didn't end that way. Because the resurrection is rooted in history, not in mythology. It's not someone's idea or just a myth. You say, John, why is the resurrection so important? Why is it so important? How many of you have ever played the game Jenga? Everybody know the game Jenga? Most of you know what that is. It's a game with blocks, and you you pull a block, and you hope the whole tower doesn't fall over. Okay, there's one layer of blocks that you rarely ever touch. Anybody know what layer of blocks that is? The The bottom layer, right? The bottom layer. You don't ever move the bottom layer, because if you move the bottom layer, what are you at risk of? The whole thing falling over. 
And we talk about the resurrection. The resurrection is the bottom layer of our faith. The creation of the world is not the bottom layer of our faith. Um, Noah and the ark is not the bottom layer of our faith. Abraham, the father of, of Judaism, is not the bottom layer of our faith. David killing Goliath is not the bottom layer of our faith. Daniel and the lion's den is not the bottom layer of our faith. Even Jesus showing up on this earth and his miracles, that's not the bottom layer of our faith. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. And if you move away that foundation, everything else you're going to see this morning would crumble. And that's why it's so important for us to look at it and explore it today. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me, 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along on an app. Uh, there's also some Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and we're on page 933, and the Bible's there right in front of you. 1 Corinthians. And the book of 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the first century called Corinth, in the city of Corinth. And this was a church that some people had come to know Jesus, had started to follow Jesus, had given their lives to Jesus, and they started meeting together in a church. And Paul heard about some things that were going on, and he sent a letter back to them to give them some instruction and direction about how to live. And this issue of the resurrection is something that he wrote, and he actually saved it till the very end. He goes on to say in verse 15, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. He said, I want to remind you of this stuff. I don't want you to forget it. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached. He said, hold tightly to God's truth. And then he goes on, and he said, what I, passed, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. He said, this is the most important thing that I've got to pass along, that Christ died for our sins. Most important thing. And in the next verse, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and raised on the third day. He then goes on to give us a little bit more information. He tells us that he appeared, Jesus, after he rose from the dead to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter was the first guy to the tomb. He saw the empty tomb when the women came and said, the body is gone. Peter took off running, outran everybody, got there first and saw that the tomb was empty. And then to the 12, to the rest of the disciples. After this, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them were still living. Some have fallen asleep, a phrase that they used for those that had died. So there's over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive. Then he appeared to James. James was Jesus' brother. James did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God when Jesus was here on the earth. He didn't believe his brother was God's Son. He didn't believe in all the miracles. He didn't believe any of that until after Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And then James believed and was now leading the church in the first century in the city of Jerusalem. And all the apostles, and last of all, he has appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so Paul says, Jesus has appeared to me after he died and rose again to all of these people. But he, then he goes on in the next few verses to explain why this is important. And this is what I want to focus our attention on, explain why this is important. Skip down to verse 14. Um, down to verse 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, so if Christ did not rise from the dead, if he went in that tomb and they rolled the stone and the stone never was moved, he said, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. So whatever I, what I do every week, there's no point in it. And your faith? 
what you hold to, what guides your life, what directs your life, what gives you hope and peace and joy and confidence. He said it's useless if Jesus never comes out of that tomb. He goes on to say, more than we would found to be false witnesses of God, for we've testified about God that He raised Jesus from the dead. He said, you know what? We're a bunch of liars as well. Not only is preaching in our faith useless, but we're also a bunch of liars. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. Think about the things in your life that you feel a level of futility. You know, trying to get your middle schooler to clean their bedroom, you feel a level of futility, you know. Trying to get certain members of your household to put the toilet seat down in the bathroom, you feel a level of futility. Getting people in your house to turn the lights off when nobody's in the room, you feel a level of futility. You're feeling it rising as I'm talking about this right now, you know. We all have those things where like, we try and we try and we try and we try and we just don't get anywhere. And that's what Paul says. He says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your faith, what you believe, you can try all you want. It's not going to matter at all. It's going to be futile. He says, you're still in your sins and lost because of it. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Again, fallen asleep for those that have died, they're just gone, done, Zippo, nothing. Life's over. Nothing is left. And then he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. A lot of people pity me right now because I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan, you know, and they've got the worst record in the major leagues. Oh, so sorry for you, John, you know. I said the same thing to Phillies fans a few years ago, you know. Um, if you feel bad because it's, uh, you, you like them, you cheer for them, but you, you know, they're just kind of awful. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then people should pity people of faith. Oh, I'm so sorry, it didn't work out. I know you hoped it would, but it didn't work out. Do, do you kind of get a sense of what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your preaching is useless. You would be a bunch of liars. Your faith is futile. Those who've died, there's no hope, and people should feel sorry for you. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. Because there's no hope in the face of death, that there's no resurrection, there's no Bible. You see, the Bible didn't create Christianity. The resurrection launched it. The resurrection launched it. And I want to take and look at four reasons why the resurrection is so important, so critical, and so foundational for us to believe that the resurrection is rooted in history and not in mythology. The first reason is we have consistent testimony from many sources. We have consistent testimony from many sources. If you were to ask the average person who's a Christ follower, he goes to church, and you were to say to them, how do you know that the resurrection happened? How do you know it's true? Most people would probably say, the what says so? The Bible says so, right? The Bible says so. And while that might be true, that's not necessarily the most accurate way to answer that question. You see, the but. The Bible is actually a collection of books. The New Testament, let's just take the New Testament, it's 27 different books compiled by nine different authors over a couple hundred years. 27 different books compiled by nine authors 
over a period of several hundred years. They were widely circulated until the third century, and some then put them all together for convenience sake and called them La Biblia, which is the Bible. The Bible. You see, it would be more accurate to say, if someone says, how do I know the resurrection is true, to say, I know the resurrection is true because Matthew, who is a first century tax collector, decided to follow Jesus and wrote down everything that he saw and experienced with Jesus. Because Mark, who was a close friend of Peter, who was with Jesus through every day of his life, told Mark the events, and Mark wrote those events down for us. Luke, who is a medical doctor, who has to pay attention to details and specifics, researched all the accounts that he could find and wrote them in an orderly fashion for those who were curious about Jesus. Because John, who was a close friend of Jesus, spent three years with him, watched him die, observed it, and then wrote about it. Because Peter, who was a first century follower of Jesus, wrote about it. Because James, who is the brother of Jesus, and who is the hardest person to convince of anything in this world, your own brother, believed after Jesus died and rose again and became a leader in the first century church. And Paul, whose first occupation was a killer of Christians, he was confronted by Jesus. And it redirected the course of his life to move from killing Christians to pointing people towards their Savior Jesus and writing the half of the New Testament. There's no first century document that has nine different authors that all agree on the same thing. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 16. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories, myths, legends, things that were made up when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were what? Say it with me. We were what? Eyewitnesses. We saw it with our own eyes. We were there. That's how we know that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the second reason that gives us confidence in the resurrection. Second reason is that the first eyewitnesses were women. Please don't take this personally, ladies, but in the first century, women's um, testimony was not valid. A woman couldn't testify in court because she was not viewed as credible. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say that the first person to the tomb was women. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices that they prepared and went to the tomb. You know, if you were making up a story and you were going to try to convince people the story was credible and believable, you would not put women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb because no one would believe your story. Another reason that the resurrection is not a myth, but an actual story. Here's the third reason that it's true, is they couldn't stop talking about it. They couldn't stop talking about it. In the book of Acts, which talks about the apostles, it says they were called in, that's Peter and John and some of the followers of Jesus, they were called in by the religious leaders and commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, what is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to God? Who should we listen to? And then look what they said. They said, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have what? Seen and heard. Seen and heard. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and they couldn't stop talking about it. You know, when we have something significant happen in our lives, you know, a significant event, maybe it's a, it's a wedding or it's a birth of a child or a grandchild or something amazing that happens, you know, we tell our family and friends, and, and then over time, we, we kind of slowly stop talking about it. But that didn't happen with these guys. 
They kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Secular historians struggle to explain how in 15 years after the resurrection, the gospel and the story of Jesus had spread to the city of Rome. You say, why is that so unusual? Because Rome was 2,500 miles away. And by 15 years after Jesus had left the earth, thousands of people in the city of Rome were following Jesus. By 60 AD, 27 years after Jesus rose from the dead, it was estimated that there was 50,000 Christians in the city of Rome. 50,000 Christians, 2,500 miles away, because they couldn't stop talking about it. Tacticus, who was a Roman senator, not a Christ follower, he wrote a history of the Roman Empire in 116 AD. And uh, if you do any studies on the history of Rome, this is probably a primary text that you would be reading from. And one of the things that most of us know about the Roman Empire is they had a Roman, they had an emperor named Nero. And Nero was a bad guy. Nero wanted a new city, and so what did he do? He burned down the old city. And then he had to find somebody to take the heat for it, the blame for it. And so who did he blame? He blamed the Christians. They became the scapegoats. Look at this quote from Tacticus. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of people called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme greatly the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. We talked about him last week, historical figure. And the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. You see, the Christ followers of Jesus, these disciples, they were so convinced they couldn't stop talking about it. They couldn't stop talking about it. They couldn't stop talking about it. And they were willing to keep talking about it until, fourthly, it cost them their lives. They were willing to die for what they knew was true. All 11 of Jesus' disciples were martyred. It means they were killed for their faith. Um, they were mocked. They were fed to lions. They were crucified. And they insisted in their final breath that Jesus was alive. Chuck Colson, who you may know as the, um, the hatchet man um, in the White House in the 70s, he was the guy kind of responsible, the right-hand man to the president, to keep the Watergate scandal quiet. And Colson writes about this in his book after he went to prison for the crimes that he committed, and then in prison he actually met Jesus, and he came out of prison and led a movement to introduce people to Jesus in prisons for the rest of his days and the rest of his life. And Chuck Colson, as he wrote, said this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. You're like, how did Watergate prove the resurrection was a fact? He goes on to say, because 11 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Never once in 40 years did someone say, you know, the pressure's getting to me. I just don't know if I can take torture anymore. Okay, it was, a, it was not true. It was a lie. Now can I go free? Never happened. 40 years. Didn't happen. Watergate embroiled 10 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. So if they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks, but then he says this about the disciples. He says they were beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
You're telling me 11 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? You see, men will give their lives for something they believe to, true, to be true, but they will never give their lives for something they know to be false or to be a lie. You can take it from an expert in cover-ups. Nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused these men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and that He is Lord. These guys were willing to die for this, to give their lives for this truth that they had not heard, that someone didn't pass along the line, but that they saw with their own eyes and experienced it. The second phrase in this part of the creed says this, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is a very important statement. I would suspect that over the past few days, with a little bit of time off, you might have been working on a project outside. It was pretty steamy, pretty hot. When you got done with that project, what did you do? What did you do after you finished your project? Tell me, what did you do? Take a nap, some of you said. You know, find your cold beverage of choice. You know, whatever it is, you find a way to take it easy. And probably what you did is you stopped working and you sat down. You sat down. And when you sit down, it means usually... You finished a task, you finished a job, it's time to take a break. The writer of Hebrews, which was written to Jewish Christians, said this. He said, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. The Jewish place of worship was the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And what Jews were responsible to do is on a daily basis, and then annually, they were responsible to bring a sacrifice as a way to try to wipe away the guilt of their sin. And so that's what the priests did. They would take the animal, they would sacrifice the animal, they would carve up the animal, they would save a little bit for them, they would burn up a little bit, and then they did this all day long. And you know what did not exist in the temple? There weren't any seats in the temple, the whole temple area. There were no seats. The priests never stopped. They never sat down symbolically, because their job was never done. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, but when this priest, referring to Jesus, had offered for all the sins, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. When he died on the cross and paid for the sins of all of mankind, he sat down because his work was finished. It was completed. When Jesus hung on the cross, his last statement on the cross was, it is what? Finished. It is finished. Not because he was giving up his final breath and his life was over, but the word finished is the word telesai, which means he's finished the task. He's completed the checklist. He can close the book on it. It's time to go home. It was done. He was the final priest, one final sacrifice, and now he could sit down. And the statement has echoed all throughout history that Jesus has completed the work that needs to be done for you and for me to have a personal relationship with God the Father. You see, most religious systems, all the other religious systems other than Christianity, they all talk about what do you have to do and how good you have to be and the, and the way you have to treat other people and the fact that your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. And every other religious system spells out their way of living out their faith in these two letters, D-O. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? 
what do I have to do? Christianity is not spelled, what do I have to do? It adds two letters. It's what is already done, D-O-N-E. What is already finished? What is already completed? Jesus has done it all. He's paid the debt. He's wiped the slate clean. He's completed the work. And then he died and rose again. And he offers to all of us this relationship with God as a gift. You see, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you say He is who He says He is, He's the God's one and only Son. And you believe in your heart that what? That God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are declared righteous before God. You're okay with God. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. God doesn't force anybody into a relationship with Him. He says, if you declare, if you declare. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're at that place where you've come to church and you've been coming to church. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time. And you know who Jesus is and you know what He did. And you know that He died on the cross for all of mankind. But you just kind of had this little niggling of doubt. I'm not really sure if it's all true. I'm not really sure if I believe it all. But maybe today, maybe this morning, you've come to the place to say, you know, it it is true. I believe it's true. And I can put my hope and my faith and my confidence in the fact that there is a resurrected Savior who is alive today. Paul says if you make that choice, if you move from that place of doubt to that place of faith, then you are one of God's children. You are one of His own And you have a relationship with Him forever. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I do, if that's where you are this morning, if you've wrestled with these issues, if you wrestle with these doubts, maybe today is the day for you to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what? I understand it. I get it. It makes sense to me. There's no doubts. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He rose from the dead and He is alive today. If you've done that, if you put that stake in the ground, then I want to ask you to ask this question. If I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that He's completed His work, that nothing else has to be done to make myself acceptable to God, that God loves me and accepts me completely as one of His own, what would I do today? What would I do today? But I would be able to live my life with incredible hope, even with the knowledge that death is something every one of us will encounter. Will I be able to live with joy no matter what because my eternity is secure? Will I focus more on the gospel instead of the things of this world and this day like politics and economics? Will I serve others faithfully anticipating being in God's presence and hearing Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why not live with shame, but walk daily in God's grace and love and acceptance of me? Would you bow your heads with me as we close this morning? And As we do, I want to invite you to just take a moment and talk to God about where you are. God, for some who are listening this morning, uh, Today's a day for them to take that step of faith, for them to say, you know, I was unsure, I had some questions, but 
It makes sense. If the foundation of what I believe is that Jesus rose from the dead, I believe it. It's a fact. And I want to anchor my life and my faith and my hope in Jesus. And today, I choose to make Him my Savior and my Lord. And if you've taken that step today, I want to challenge you to say, what does believing that Jesus died, rose again, and is alive, and has completed everything that needs to be done, what does that mean for me? How will I live in hope, in confidence, in the wonder of His love and mercy and grace in my life every day? Lord Jesus, you know where each one of us is at. You know what our stories are. Pray that you would meet us there and walk with us as we seek to follow you. In your name.